Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is Bill Crystal, one of the founders of The Bulwark. Well, the stock market has plunged into correction territory. Italy has banned all retail traffic except supermarkets and pharmacies. The NBA has suspended its season, and the panic uh, accelerates. The president gave an overall office address last night meant to reassure the nation, and it caused the markets to crash again so that the... um, uh, what do you call those? The circuit. Uh, circuit breakers, thank you, had to be tripped. Um, so Bill Crystal, um, one of the measures that the president proposed last night was a 30-day travel ban from Europe, but not the United Kingdom. Uh, what, what did you make of that, and what did you make of the speech in general? I mean, I don't know. I'm no expert on what public health measures are right at the right time, so is what I've read other actual people who know something have made of it, which is maybe mildly useful, though too broad and not very well explained. And, and of course, he had to correct, the White House had to correct what he initially said, which, uh, and the way he set it up has led to panic and huge numbers of people. I saw this on the, online this morning at Charles de Gaulle Airport and stuff, which is probably not helping uh, contain the spread of the virus. So again, it, it, even if it's directionally sort of the right thing, and at least he's moved from denial to a sense of alarm, which is probably healthy. The clumsiness and uh, just uh, lack of, I don't know, care, I guess, and planning in the administration's response, certainly what the president says, and to some degree in the overall administration response, since you can't separate the two entirely, is really terrible. I I thought this morning, uh, you know, there is something to be said for just pure good governance, right? Competence. Mm-hmm. Hamilton, I think Hamilton writes in one of the Federalists, is it 68 or something, that, you know, uh, obviously we care about a lot of things other than competence and pure good administration in government, but if you don't have a government that is competently administrated, all the other good qualities of it, it's being representative and, you know, protecting our liberties and stuff, which are unbelievably important, that those can sort of fall by the wayside, especially in a public health crisis. And I guess what's most distressing is, A, Trump's personal irresponsibility and apparent sort of fecklessness, but B, the degree to which the administration as a whole just doesn't, one might have hoped that, well, okay, the professionals can kind of operate, you know, one level down, kind of ignoring Trump, but it doesn't seem that that's been going terribly well either. Yeah, Linda, I want to pick up on Bill's point there because you've worked in White Houses, I have. Um, A presidential Oval Oval Office address is the most carefully vetted and planned thing imaginable. Everybody has buy-in. Everybody sees it beforehand. Everything is checked and double-checked, fact-checked particularly. Um, And, you know, the notion that, you know, the people around Trump will smooth the waters, they will handle this, and they'll put him out there and give him a decent speech to deliver, and things will, everybody will be reassured. Uh, that didn't Not quite what it. happened. No. I will tell you, I um, had a speaking engagement yesterday in Minneapolis, and so I was on an airplane when the president was delivering the speech, came home, turned on TV, and watched the replay. 
Um, I was feeling relatively good until I heard the president speak. And then I I began to panic (laughs) because he was, there was something really odd going on with him. First of all, he seemed to be sweating profusely. He was having trouble, uh, as he often does with words in his forming of words. Uh, My sense was he was on some sort of medication. Um, And the sheer incompetence of this administration, which I always thought was going to be what brought him down. We talked a lot about what happens when a real crisis comes. And we thought maybe it would be an attack, you know, some sort of a terrorist attack. And now it's something in many ways more terrifying because Mm -hmm. it's unseen. Um, And this administration, uh, they had apparently Jared Kushner and Stephen Miller write the speech. I mean, and he called it a foreign virus, as if viruses have passports. And, you know, I mean, it's it, the whole thing was just so bizarre. And then the, you know, we're going to stop all commerce. No no container ships are going to come up. Well, that's not going to happen. There were, there were happen. specific uh, factual errors that had specific. to be corrected within minutes of Absolutely. the president's finishing his speech. That was one of and them. And that, you know, you're right. I mean, you know, Mona, you and I were there in the White House. I was part of the distribution list when Ronald Reagan gave a speech. You were in a speechwriter at one point, mm-hmm. and so you saw speeches. It went throughout the White House, and people got to comment, and the experts were the ones who were giving the comment. And here you had the sense that Jared and Stephen, you know, sat down with the president and said, well, how are we going to kind of manage this? And it was a political speech, not a speech that really told us what we needed to know. Bill, it it was heavy on economic measures, you know, vague hopes to uh, stimulate the economy and so forth. It was really unbelievably light on anything having to do with coping with a medical emergency. Talk about uh, testing kits, talk about increasing hospital capacity, and and so on. Uh, did, did that strike you as well? Oh, absolutely. And as I drove in to work this morning for what may turn out to be the last time <laughs> in a very long time. Because Brookings you know, is closing their Brookings offices. Brookings is closing down. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was listening to Anthony Fauci and, you know, the the head of the CDC, Dr. Redfield, I believe his mm-hmm. name is. And it was like night and day. Yeah. Right? I mean, they were talking common sense about exactly the issue that you just mentioned, Mona. That is, what does what does mitigation look like in these circumstances? What does testing look like in these circumstances? What are the obstacles uh, in the testing pipeline that make it so difficult in practice to deliver tests in a timely fashion to the people who need them where they need them? It was really, it was, it was a sobering lesson in the distinction between the challenges of actually governing a country, you know, as you know, as opposed to simply talking in very vague and superficial ways about matters that you haven't bothered to learn about. And the lack of curiosity in presidents can be fatal because they need to be able to learn the basics quickly so that they can talk credibly about them. I have to say, as I listened to the president deliver his speech last night, I didn't see it. I Once again, I was driving home from a, speak, from a speaking engagement. He sounded as though 
he was being held hostage and being forced to deliver a speech that somebody else had written for him that he wasn't sure he exactly believed in or wanted to deliver. I mean, the lack of conviction with which he delivered that speech, I'm afraid, contributed to the ensuing panic, which is being played out on Wall Street today. You know, Damon, one of the things he could have done that would have been consistent with the Trumpian persona uh, is he could have said, I have learned that there were terrible roadblocks uh, involved in getting the tests where they needed to be, that the FDA didn't give approval for these other tests, that there was a, you know, th that this was a lot of bureaucratic red tape, and I have decreed that this needs to be slashed, and I've appointed this person who's going to be in charge of cutting red tape and making sure the tests are where they need to be, right? I mean, that actually, I can imagine, would have, people would have sat up straight and said that that's what we want, that's leadership. Well, yes, of course. And, you know, we can all <clears throat> drive ourselves mad thinking of all the ways almost every day of this administration, like how it could have gone better if only he had done this or that, <laughs> even on the basis of Trump's own premises. Mm -hmm. Okay, he's a nationalist. He He's against immigration. There are certain things that he, you know, is just going to stick to. He's a skeptic about trade. You can always come up with a scenario where, all right, beginning from those assumptions, what could he say to actually be competent and actually accomplish something and be a leader uh, and show leadership, especially in a situation like this where every, everyone, Americans, all Americans, uh, as well as the markets, really need to hear it. And he's just totally incapable of it. Now, I will say my expectations for this man are so low that as I watched, and I actually watched it, um, the the orange makeup visage on my TV screen, um, I actually thought for him, this wasn't bad. <laughs> In the sense that he, and, and this is my, my standard, this is the standard. He did not say that this was fake news. He did not say I'm being blamed by these hoaxing Democrats. He didn't deny that it was real. The fact that he actually acknowledged the reality that there is a virus that can make people sick and we have to do certain things to combat it and it's a serious moment was something because one of our big problems in this country, as we have learned to our detriment and shame as Americans, is that there's a significant faction of American citizens and voters who will believe pretty much anything both this president and his media infrastructure you know, spew out into the, uh, into the ecosystem. And so, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's and so forth. Yep. And so the fact that he at least did what I just described, I, I breathed a bit of sigh of relief. Now, of course, well, you've really minutes, been beaten down. Defining competency down. But then I learned within a few minutes, of course, that he had misstated three important points of facts. <laughs> yes. And, uh, the, the 
Dow futures were going off a cliff and Tom Hanks was sick and the NBA <laughs> season was suspended. All yeah. of that happened within about 40 minutes of the speech being over. So, you know, yeah. and here we are. So, Damon, I want to get back. I want all of us uh, to get back in a second to the right wing uh, misinformation silo, uh, because I think that's one of the really important aspects of this whole thing. But before I do that, I want to just get your reaction, you, Damon, to um, and Bill Galston, jump in if you'd like to. Um, there, it isn't completely unfair to say that people on the left, from the minute this virus made its appearance, were ready to declare it to be Trump's Katrina, were kind of gleeful about the possibility that this might hurt him, and ra more focused on that really than was seemly, right? They, they, they didn't even use the, the, uh, the pretense that they were concerned about the actual virus. They talked about it being very, very potentially damaging to him. Now it's turned out to be very damaging and that we can get into that, but um, that was irresponsible too, wasn't it? Of course, yeah. I mean, actually, two or three weeks ago, I can't remember which, on this podcast, right at near the end, we sort of went around and spoke briefly about the virus as it existed at that point, largely in China, spreading a bit to Italy at that point, I believe, but still not anywhere near what it is now. And I, I believe Bill Galston made a point of... I, I was a little bit more inclined to say, oh, no, let's not get, you know, too hysterical, not too much panic, let's keep our heads sort of in the spirit that you're describing, that, like, let's not let this just be the latest, uh, you know, object, blunt object that, you know, Democrats are going to now pound Trump over and let it get sucked into that whirlwind of partisanship. But, you know, Bill was right to point out that even at that stage, you could look at, uh, the fatality rate and see that it was quite a bit higher than uh, standard influenza and that this could be something that really could become a major problem. Uh, so, you know, that was that was the right judgment to make on the substance. But yeah, I, I totally... I get, and I have kind of by by disposition or by nature, my temperament is to sort of respond to the you know whatever the latest outrage seems to be with a little bit of skepticism. In this case, I think it's turned out to to probably be as bad as we might have feared a few weeks ago. Yeah, I I, I um was being very cautious about criticizing the president's handling of this crisis from the beginning. I wanted to hold off and, and back off because I thought he has such a hair trigger and it's his natural mode is to, you know, to become defensive and immediately start lashing out and treating it as a personal attack when clearly this, this so badly needed to be handled with some maturity and statesmanship. So I thought it wouldn't do, it would be harmful actually to, to criticize him then. <laughs> but, um, but that time has passed. So, so let's, let's move now to really, I, I, the situation that we are in now is one I don't, we've never faced before. Uh, we've had epidemics, pandemics before, nothing this scary. Uh, I was listening to an epidemiologist this week who was saying he doesn't think this is the big one, like the one that would be in movies like Contagion. But he said those things are possible if the avian flu-like diseases could mutate slightly um, and be passed easily from human to human as this one is, you could see death rates of 40%. 
Um, and this should be seen as a dress rehearsal for a potential catastrophic um, situation like that. But, but before getting to that, I'd like people to just comment on the extraordinary situation of half the country, about maybe 40% of the country, the, the 40% that is within the Fox News, Hannity, Rush Limbaugh, Donald Trump silo, uh, being fed misinformation and lies about something that can kill them and can kill other people if they don't take certain precautions. And so you have these extraordinary polls showing that, you know, large majorities of Democrats in the United States believe that the coronavirus is a serious health threat and minorities of Republicans believing that. Um, you have people like Ann Coulter saying um, that it's, uh, what, what are we so concerned about? The average age of death out of China was 81. <laughs> it's like, oh, so we don't care whether old people are going to die. Uh, you had Matt Gates showing up, he's a congressman, showing up at CPAC wearing a gas mask as, mm -hmm. to, to, to um, ridicule the whole idea of being concerned, uh, and so on and so on. You have, you know, even Paul it Gosar, who's also a member of Congress, tweeting, who is self-quarantining because he came into contact with somebody who was positive at the CPAC conference, he and Ted Cruz, he tweeted, Ted Cruz and I should pay a private visit to uh, to Justice Ginsburg. Ha ha. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, well, but, you know, Gates, who, who showed up in the gas mask, I noticed that when he found out he had shaken hands or whatever with somebody who ended up being testing uh, positive for coronavirus, he went and got a test. And by the way, a lot of very sick people out there are not able to get access to tests. So how is it that he got the test? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that's the point. Look, I am one not to generally panic. As you know, Mona, I was planning to be in Spain this week. I know. And I did not cancel my trip until Sunday evening, and I canceled it when Spain's cases tripled virtually overnight. And when I realized I'm going to be there for about eight or 10 days <clears throat> from now, and I don't know what it's going to look like 10 days from now, so I think I better cancel. I didn't, I, you know, I joked about, oh, I'd rather be quarantined in Sevilla than in Washington, D.C., but in truth, that would not be true. And I am in the vulnerable category. I will be 73 in June. I've had pneumonia twice over the last couple, uh, six years, and so I have to be cautious. I have to take care of myself. But Trump supporters are exactly that group. All you need to do is to pan the audience at a Trump rally to know most of them are over 60, Some of, many of them over 70, some of them over 80. They don't look like the healthiest people out there. And yet until today, and he hasn't still definitively said he's not going to be holding rallies, he was planning on holding rallies. He's still shaking hands. We're being told not to shake hands. I haven't shaken a hand now since I was told not to do it. I wear, when I go out in public, I wear gloves so that if I do touch something, I can get rid of the gloves afterwards and be careful not to touch my face. But the President of the United States is out there glad-handing people. He, you know, had dinner with an official from the Brazilian government who's now tested positive, and apparently he sat next to this guy. So when they are acting so irresponsibly, how is it the rest of us are supposed to learn to act responsibly? Um, as recently as last week, Bill Kristol, 
the president said that uh, the cases in the United States are going down, going down very substantially. Yeah, I mean, look, at least he's uh, changed some way. He's less, he's not as irresponsible now as he was a week ago, and I'm going to pay a price for that irresponsibility over uh, recent weeks and months, and also the failure to show real leadership in, in the, what the government does in addition to what he's said. But I agree with Damon, at least uh, he's now alarmed and taking it seriously, and therefore, you know, this may save some lies if some of the viewers who believe him, and maybe Fox changes its uh, tone, and suddenly people do take precautions. So I suppose we should be grateful for, for little favors. I, want, I do want to make the point you made about the three minutes ago, Mona, when you were asking Damon the question, which is, one of the things, I was in New York last week, well, we're all reflecting on our recent travels, our last travels for a while, probably, mm. and uh, someone who was at this dinner uh, was close to a major, sound like a pharmaceutical executive, I didn't push him on who it was, who had been seen Trump pretty recently. And this guy, I gather the executive was not a big fan of President Trump, but he said, you know, one thing that he was struck by was that Trump seemed to understand this was a big challenge. And he did think that Trump being a, a disrespecter of norms and procedures and processes and business as usual might, in a way, uh, do some good by really disrupting the system in a healthy way. And it is true that long articles about CDC and FDA, there's plenty in the side, I think, the, the red tape and the failures. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that came to light that you know makes it seem that the federal government, uh, admittedly in this case with no leadership from the top, it wasn't doing everything it could have done. So, But we have ended up with the worst of both worlds. That's what's really distressing from an actual, just, you know, outcomes point of view. We've ended up with presidential irresponsibility still continuing, not quite as bad today as it was a week ago, and no real, it doesn't seem effective leadership from the president or from other senior agencies. And I think almost everyone on this call, on this podcast has been in government, and you know, it makes a big difference if you have, and it just seems like the people, if you have good leadership at the cabinet secretary and agency head level, and I don't, you know, look, those are tough jobs, and I don't want to impugn any one of them individually, I suppose, but you just read the stories and you don't see much evidence of people saying, well, look, whatever the president says, I'm going to make sure my part of the government is functioning uh, extremely well and that we're getting out ahead of the curve as much as we can. And I'm, if the president of the White House resists some things, I'm going to go fight for them. You just don't get that impression at all. So we're ending up with the normal uh, U.S. style, uh, sort of the flip side of our virtues, kind of decentralized, you know, sprawling government which has to coordinate with states and localities and the private sector. And, and civic institutions and universities and private labs, and that's often a good thing and can be a very good thing, and still is, I think, on net a good thing to have that kind of system, but it does pose particular challenges and crises. But that's where you need strong leadership, but we haven't really had strong practical leadership, and we've had total irresponsibility from the top, and the combination is really bad, and I, I mean, that's where I really do worry that we're, you know, we end up with the worst of both worlds. You know, the, the quote that summed up this problem uh, for me was that from uh, Anthony Fauci, um, the famed uh, leader of the uh, Department of, uh, I guess, the uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases uh, wing over at NIH, who's a familiar figure for decades and trusted and so forth. And, and he, I may have mentioned this on last week's podcast, but it's worth repeating because it sums up what we're dealing with when you have somebody, when you have this malignant narcissist in the Oval Office. And, and even in a time of crisis, when you would think that people would be able to just sort of ignore him and do the things they do best, 
Fauci said, well, you have to try to maintain your own credibility and not go to war with the president of the United States. Well, <laughs> that's the challenge. And, you know, it should not be the challenge, obviously. And let me just read one other part of a quote from Robert Redfield, who is a virologist, by the way, and he's the head of the Centers for Disease Control. And he did this whole fawning routine when Trump visited the CDC. Also, you know, they all feel all of these otherwise normal, respected authority figures in our society, once they come into this Trump orbit, they begin to adopt the palace's uh, uh, requirements. And one of them is that you must praise the great leader North Korea style. And so, you know, Robert Redfield said, I want, sir, I want to thank you for your decisive leadership in helping us put health first. And he went on in that vein, you know, and this was at a time when Trump was doing anything but that. He was doing the opposite. And you can say, well, maybe Redfield was trying to nudge him in the direction of doing the right thing by telling him he was already doing it. I mean, that's the best possible interpretation you can put on it, I suppose. But uh, but the fact that that our best people feel that they have to do this and that and they may feel constrained in other ways, they may feel constrained, for example, in not um, complaining more loudly that many of the meetings of the task force that is ta is uh, working in HHS and the White House, the, their meetings have been classified, uh, which has kept many of the, of the experts in the, the field of infectious disease from attending the meetings uh, because they don't have the proper security clearance. Uh, that is just, uh, that's just dangerous and, uh, and corrosive and arguably it is now to the point where it's not just all of us, you know, banging the table and saying this isn't the way things ought to be done. This is going to be causing people to die. Well, it, it, it is nuts, but I think the reason you're seeing people like Redfield behave the way they are is they don't want to be frozen out. And what they're worried about is if they don't do the dear leader speech uh, at the beginning of every time they talk, that they won't be invited next time. And then they will not be able to get any information out. That is what the kind of corrosive um, atmosphere of fear that has infected this administration at the highest levels has done. Nobody is willing to tell the emperor he has no clothes, and no one is willing to stand up uh, to a man who is, and I think your phrase was a brilliant one, malignantly narcissistic. All right. Well, um, we will... Uh... We will see that next week uh, this podcast uh, it will not be remain unaffected by this uh, outbreak. We are probably not going to be record, almost certainly not going to be recording back here in this office because the office will be closed. We're going to all be remote and uh, we're going to use a new technology uh, and hopefully for the listener the experience won't change. Uh, but lots of other things in our lives obviously are changing. All right. Um, so the uh, pandemic isn't the only thing in the news. We also had more primaries and uh, Joe Biden marching on to victory, winning four out of the six. Um, so uh, Bill Galston, uh, want to tell us the significance of turnout in Michigan? <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, and and if you looked at where the turnout went up the most, 
it was in a lot of the areas that flipped from Obama to Trump four mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And the Biden campaign has to be encouraged uh, by that development for, for the general election. Now, you might say, well, they'd better be encouraged because there's no plausible path to an electoral college victory for Democrats that doesn't go through the state of Michigan. But it looks as, it looks as though, in Michigan at least, the wind is in Vice President Biden's sails. And, uh, and if Michigan can be put in the Democratic column fairly early in the fall— that would then free the campaign up to pivot resources to states like Wisconsin and Arizona that are going to be much, much more critical. Uh, one finding that particularly intrigued me was the big shift in the iconic Macomb County mm-hmm. right outside of Detroit that people have been writing about ever since Stan Greenberg in 1985 as the epicenter of the white working class revolt against the Democratic Party. They came home. So, yeah, it is, it is good news. And uh, uh, Bernie Sanders in 2016 won four out of the six states that were contested on Tuesday. And this time he won the least significant one, North Dakota, and basically tied in Washington. It's not yet been resolved. Mm-hmm. Basically tied in Washington, a state that had a caucus four years ago where, of course, he dominated everything. Uh, and if you look forward to the rest of the contests this month, uh, the the four big states next Tuesday, including Florida, where he is now trailing Vice President Biden by 50 percentage points, hot off his praise of Fidel Castro. <laughs> but right. there are other factors, like the Jewish vote, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which will go for the Catholic overall. <laughs> Over the Jew. <laughs> Over the Jew, right. <laughs> uh, the erstwhile Jew. Right. Uh, I think... Uh, Vice President Biden already has a delegate lead of more than 150, mm-hmm. and he is likely to end the month of March with a delegate lead of over 300, with two-thirds of the delegates, fully two-thirds of the of the pledged delegates already awarded by the end of March. People are not really aware of how front-loaded the system is. So the math for making up that kind of large differential in delegates is really prohibitive. And I, th- my, my hunch is that by the end of the month at the latest, there will be a much more organized effort on the part of Democratic leaders uh, to gently persuade Senator Sanders to exit the race gracefully. Damon, in light of the results in the last couple of weeks of primaries, a, a new uh, conventional wisdom has been born. And it goes like this. Um, everybody misinterpreted the 2016 Democratic primaries. Uh, people thought, including candidate Bernie Sanders, that there was an enormous untapped appetite for real socialism in the Democratic base. And in fact, it turns out, based on the results this year, that no, it was just dissatisfaction with Hillary Clinton. Do you buy into that? Oh, well, I buy into it enough to uh, have tweeted out uh, in the midst of the election returns coming in on Tuesday night that it appears that 
Uh, Michigan hated Hillary Clinton so much that it voted for Bernie Sanders four years ago, and then it hated Hillary Clinton so much that it voted for Trump, <laughs> uh, whereas they do not hate Joe Biden. Now, that's, of course, a, 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 an excellent tweet because it's very glib and uh, kind of simplifying <laughs> in the way that tweets <laughs> Uh, tend to be when they do well. But uh, there is some truth to that, I think, and more than many of us thought. Now, it's a little hard for me. I Unlike, I think, Mona, you, and, and Linda, and from some things you've said over the weeks on the podcast, um, I've never hated Hillary Clinton. I've never thought she was the worst possible candidate on earth. But it's clear that uh, the Clintons have a lot of baggage and uh, we can go way back in time to the origins of the hatred on the right for the Clintons and dissect its, uh, its perhaps uh, kind of over-the-top quality from the very beginning and so forth. But I do think that whatever its origins, um, there were a lot of people who... Uh, you know, at least once she was out of uh, the Obama administration as Secretary of State and trying to run for president, who really turned on her. And it is it is conceivable that we did misread a lot of this, that there was something very sui generis about 2016. And it's that the that Hillary Clinton was running and it distorted both the Democratic Party uh, the, um, primary system with uh, with Bernie ending up doing much better than he otherwise would have. And then, of course, allowed Trump to so narrowly win the presidency just because of states like Michigan saying, nope, if she's the nominee, I'll try this guy. And um, uh, we'll be probably arguing over what was really true for a long time to come, I have no doubt. By the way, she, uh, I just happen to have it in my notes here. She won, uh, Hillary Clinton, that is Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in the state of Michigan by 10,500 votes right. in 2016. So, total squeaker. Yeah, Bill, you wanted to make a point yeah, about let me that? Just try to, let me just try to parse your question a little bit. Uh, the old conventional wisdom was half right, and the new conventional wisdom is half right. Uh, because you have to distinguish between Senator Sanders' young adult supporters who did it, who voted for him, because they believed in him and not because they hated Hillary Clinton. And then the older voters, many of whom were white working class voters who genuinely did not like Hillary Clinton. Uh, and as, you know, as I analyzed the situation, not in the most recent Wall Street Journal column, but, but a week or two ago, uh, there are many affirmative reasons why young adults who are not you know, born conservative uh, genuinely resonate to important pieces of the socialist message. Many of them, many of them, are earning lower wages than their education would otherwise have entitled them to. Uh, many of them have huge student loan debts. Many of them can't imagine that they will ever own homes. I could go on. They've had a series of pretty discouraging life experiences. Uh, that incline them towards the view that some radical changes, including more government, are, are indicated. And those young adults have been formed by those experiences in ways that are not, whose effects are not going to disappear quickly. So we're going to have a portion of the electorate from now until the time they die 
who are going to have different attitudes towards government than their parents and grandparents. That's just a fact. I'm not so sure I agree with you, uh, Bill. I mean, I I do think people, as they age, do become more conservative in their views. You know, when you're bringing home a minimum wage paycheck, um, you may feel differently than you're going to feel when those wages start to go up. And and for the most part, particularly students who are are workers, rather, who have college degrees, their earnings will go up over time. Uh, They will get married. They will uh, end up owning homes. And uh, so I think I I don't want to overblow the fact that we've got this uh, cohort that is going to stay radical. Let me tell you you why I disagree with your disagreement, (laughs) just speaking as a political scientist for a minute. There is a lot of evidence to the effect that the experiences that you have as a young adult are the most formative. They are kind of, they're like in a kind of invisible dye. So you have people who came to maturity in, during the Great Depression, who went on to earn solidly middle-class livings, if not better, but who retained the buying habits. Frugality. Fr- right. Frugality, who, you know, who were always inclined to think that prosperity, as though wel- although welcome, was fragile. You know, who could always imagine you know, the bottom falling out of things, and who were very conservative along that dimension. And because they were conservative along that dimension, they were liberal in their attitudes towards government as a safety net. These attitudes never changed, even though their lives changed fundamentally. Query, and I don't know the answer, and you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Will this generation of young adults with the opposite set of formative experiences uh, uh, totally shed those views as they age? In part, they will, but I think there will be some an important residual element of the young adult that, experience. That may be, but you know, there were a lot of FDR supporters who ended up voting for Ronald Reagan too. And by the way, Ronald Reagan himself supported <laughs> FDR. So, but I, I, one thing I, I think is important to to talk about, and that is Joe Biden's appeal. We sort of act like he's the default. Wait, before you get to Joe mm-hmm. Biden's appeal, can I just also respond mm-hmm. to Bill's point because I, I want to get in on this as well, um, and it's a big subject that we may get into more on other podcasts, but I have a couple of responses. First, I think um, while some of what you say is certainly, is no doubt true, um, you are speaking, your column was geared particularly toward those members of the uh, younger uh, cohort who have been to college, which is actually a minority of young voters. Most of them have not gone to college. Two-thirds of them don't attend college. Um, And so they don't have those big debts. Second, um, many of the things that the people in that age range feel uh, are not fair to them or have not served them well are the results of, a, of big government making bad decisions, including uh, raising the cost of tuition at colleges, including making housing really prohibitively expensive um, through rent control and other kinds of policies um, that are very good for the rich and the poor and very tough on the middle class. Um, and so it's um, it's a complicated picture, and it's not one where we should just simply say, ah, yes, the 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 youth, you know, they they're right. What we need is is more statism that will solve their problems. So well, the question is not what I there. think. The question right, is what I they understand. think. I understand. <laughs> well, but but I also I, I do think the, the, that that it's uh, it, 
there's room there to to have a good debate about why the things that they feel angry about are the way they are and what is the proper solution. So, I agree with well, that. Okay. I, I just want to talk a, a little bit about Joe Biden and his yeah. appeal. And, and I said it on Sunday when I was on State of the Union. I said I thought Michigan was going to go, uh, we were going to be surprised by how well Biden did in Michigan because of working class and union voters. I first became aware of Joe Biden in 1972 when my husband was an intern at the AFL-CIO COPE, which is their Committee on Political Education. And uh, everybody loved to do imitations of then the COPE director, Al Barkins, uh, talking about Joe Biden. Uh, and I won't do it on the air for you because uh, it, it wouldn't come off well. But the, uh, the AFL-CIO was all in for Joe Biden when he ran for the U.S. Senate for the first time in 1972. He has a long history with working people. And he he is sort of lunchbox Joe. He does come out of that kind of background. He can connect with those voters in a way that Hillary Clinton simply never could. And so I think there's, you know, it's not all about how this, you know, is an anti-somebody vote. I think there are a lot of people out there, including myself, even though I don't agree with him on policy, who find Joe Biden personally appealing. I find his story personally appealing. Uh, appealing. And when I hear him speak, I'm hearing a voice that I think is, number one, soothing and uh, makes me have some confidence. Uh, and number two, his experience, I mean, even on this coronavirus, I mean, he headed up the, uh, the White House's response to the Ebola crisis. So I think that there are going to be a lot of people who are not just voting against Trump or against any of the other nominees. They're actually going to be voting for Joe Biden. His uh, speech uh, the night of the primary on Tuesday night, which he delivered uh, in a great locale at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia and made reference to our founding and so forth. His speech was, I thought, excellent. That's the Biden that we need to see more of. He was calm. He was uh, dignified. He wasn't shouting as he had been the previous week. Um, he, he and his wife both were very well turned out, uh, I thought. And, he looked uh, presidential. Yep. Looked and by the way, while we're doing this podcast, he's on air giving a speech today about the coronavirus. And right. my expectation is it's going to be a, quite a presidential speech. Well, and uh, one of his most senior aides, Ron Klain, is the guy who was served, in effect, as the executive director and chief operating officer of the Ebola response. And he can talk in very impressive detail about what works and what doesn't. And I'm sure those experiences have been fed straight into Vice President Biden's speech. So, Damon, um, there are still two candidates, well, three candidates left in this race. Tulsi Gabbard has not dropped out. Um, Tulsi, who came in sixth in Michigan when there were only three active campaigns. <laughs> Never say die. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, okay, so, so now they're supposed to have a debate this Sunday, I think. Um, and, uh, and Bernie is declining to drop out. What do you make of that? Uh, you know, he isn't, you wonder, 
Well, the party elders should go to Bernie and tell him to drop out. Oh, wait, there's no such thing as a party elder, and Bernie isn't a Democrat. So, but he is, well, that's <laughs> more. He is yeah, an elder. Are- he is an elder, yeah, Bill points out. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been, I was uh, as uh, surprised as anyone at how quickly uh, things consolidated around Biden heading into uh, Super Tuesday within less than a week. So that sort of shook my uh, blithe dismissal of the notion that the party ever gets to decide anymore. So there maybe there are some elders who have some power. However, I do think that at least for this debate coming up on Sunday, it really does have to go forward. I mean, if you look at the delegates uh, that each side has won so far, uh, the last I looked at it, you know, they're still counting California and then Washington is still out and will be for a little while. But roughly Biden winning at the moment by about 150, about roughly 850 to 700, I think. Um, now, clearly Biden's ahead. Clearly, if you look at the states coming up over the last next six weeks, they're like four fifths going to go to Biden and they're going to be by huge margins. Like, as we said earlier, Florida by maybe 50 points. So I think it's probably all locked up. However, when you're dealing with a party fissure between these young, very uh, passionate Bernie supporters who are not happy about the prospect of Biden being the nominee. Um, and when the delegate gap is not that great yet, and one more point, when there have been uh, concerns voiced about Biden's ability to kind of be sharp, whether he's having some uh, issues of uh, cognitive decline, uh, you, you can't swoop in and kind of strong arm Bernie into quitting a little prematurely and just giving up. I think we sort of have to see this through. We, and we have to want, uh, Biden to come out on Sunday and do a good job and actually stand up to Sanders and explain why a Biden administration would be vastly preferable to San- a Sanders administration on about 18 different levels. And, um, you know, because he is going to have to go up against Trump, presuming they're both healthy yeah. <laughs> uh, in six months. Uh, he's going to have to do that. And we, we if he can't, we have to know it. Now, I think he'll do fine. I agree with Mona that, that he sounded great Tuesday night. If he keeps, if he can modulate a little bit, maybe when he's up there and not facing, you know, eight opponents all at once, he can kind And of by the way, there will be bit. no audience, which might Yes, help. exactly. Yeah, I mean, who knows what that'll do. It could create a kind of weird, awkward vibe in the room. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll see. But I, I do think, I, you know, as much as I, I would love this to be over and Bernie to kind of go away, <laughs> yeah. um, I think we got to let it play out a little bit longer. I frankly, if Bernie loses everything on Tuesday... And especially Florida by 50 points, including the, the Latino vote by huge margins. He, I bet he probably, you know, will realize there's no point in being humiliated every, every single uh, day people are voting for the next several months. It'll probably stand down. So do you all think um, that the best strategy here is for Biden to be very firm and and tough and leaderly in taking on Sanders in the debate, 
but then immediately pivot after the uh, next primary to very conciliatory, very welcoming to Bernie's supporters, very gracious about Bernie himself and all that. Is that is that the way to do it? What do you think, Bill? Monica. Oh, Bill, I'm, you're back. I'm, I the, I'm back. Yeah, yeah, I had to stop for one second, but oh, okay. I'm sorry about that. Good. No, no, yeah. no problem. No, I think he should actually be... He should be polite to Bernie Sanders and, you know, listen to his points and deal with them in a sentence or two and then use 90 percent of his time to make his case to the broader American public, criticize President Trump, be as he has been today, apparently in his speech, you know, address the real problems and give a sense of how he would deal with them as president. Um, I think it's not even much point getting in a big argument with Sanders. It runs, you know, some risks of, I don't know what, of just you know, losing an exchange, so to speak, because Sanders is a pretty, knows his talking points awfully well. He's been using them for 40, 50 years. And um, <laughs> so I'd be, you know, he doesn't need to do well in the debate to win the states on Tuesday, I don't think. So yeah. I, I, think he'll, I think he will view this as kind of the, uh, as actually a follow-on to his speech Tuesday night and his speech today as a reintroduction of himself to the broader public. And so I wouldn't get too obsessed with Sanders. Right. Okay. Uh, we have come to the final segment where we draw attention to something uh, that we'd like everyone to know about. Linda? Well, I'm going to give some practical health advice. Uh, there was a terrific article in the Washington Post. As somebody who suffers from seasonal allergies and who lives in the mid-Atlantic region, which is the worst place to live in the world, I think, if you have allergies, there's an article on how to differentiate between allergies and coronavirus. Uh, I get dirty looks all the time because I'm sometimes coughing and sneezing, and uh, people obviously think I'm sick, and I am, but I have allergies, and I think this is very good because what we don't want is a lot of people, like Representative Getz, going and running to try to demand coronavirus tests when they don't have coronavirus. They simply have hay fever. Bill Crystal, did you have something? <clears throat> yeah, I don't have anything quite that practical. Here's a more <laughs> sort of intellectual task that we all face. I do think it's an interesting moment. It's a worrisome moment for the country, but in terms of the future of conservatism, liberalism, how to defend liberal democracy, and in particular now with the virus, the sort of question of limited uh, and effective government. I think the late Martin Diamond used to point out that the Federalist uh, was for limited government, certainly, but also for effective government in the areas where government had to function. And uh, certainly a public health crisis is, is one where you there's a limit to what civil society and the private sector can do and, and what states and localities can do since we have you know, free travel across this country, obviously, and, and so forth. So uh, viruses don't respect state borders and they don't respect the borders of public and private sector and so forth. So I think, you know, I think it's a time actually for some fresh thinking on, on, on so many issues uh, at accord, I would argue, with traditional principles of, of our government and of liberal democracy, but I really try to think them through in, in the 21st century. Thank you. Damon. Well, I've, I've never done this before because it's a little unseemly to recommend something from my own employer, but uh, it really was a very good piece by my uh, colleague and friend, Noah Millman, uh, titled, The Only Way to Protect the Economy is to Defeat the Virus, which very nicely encapsulates its message. Uh, Noah used to work uh, on Wall Street, was a derivatives analyst and trader uh, prior to the uh, meltdown in 2008. So he knows, he knows his business, uh, quite well. And it's a very uh, compelling argument that, uh, makes the simple but essential point that all of this 
noise that we're hearing from the Trump administration that, well, we need stimulus, and you got to cut payroll taxes, uh, the Fed has to do more. Okay, fine, we can do some of that, but keep in mind that what is happening to the market right now is a reflection of what is happening with the virus and the public health needs of trying to keep it under control. And nothing we do is going to make that stop until the virus is contained. And as a, as a kind of encapsulization of that, there was the fact that earlier this afternoon on Thursday, the Fed announced uh, some kind of an intervention in the Treasury market that I wasn't able to read up on much because it happened right before we went on the air. But right after that happened, the market, which was down over 2,000 points, shot back up to down only about 1,200 points. And ever since then, over the last two hours, it's been falling, 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 and it's down 2,000 again. So um, th that, I think, is the dynamic, and Millman's piece is a, is a good explainer on why that's the case. Thank you. Yeah. They, you know, this is a perfect opening. I'm sure some cartoonist will do a cartoon, you know, where somebody is saying, you know, I, I fear I might die from this disease. Let's see what the government is doing. Oh, a Fed rate cut. I feel so much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for 15 minutes, right? Take yeah. 50 basis points and see me in the morning. Yeah, exactly. right? yes. <laughs> is it my Bill, turn? Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I just want to focus for a minute on some of the longer-term consequences of what we're going through now. Uh, crises function like x-rays, and they reveal portions of the overall system that are largely invisible. And so we have learned in this crisis that the global drug supply chain, you know, medical drugs, is highly dependent in some, for some sectors more than 80% on China. Yep. Now, uh, I disagreed with the, with President Trump's view that uh, the pressure on the domestic steel sector was a potential national security threat. But you know, our global supply lines in vital medicines, including nearly all antibiotics. Uh, are a genuine threat. And so in a very backhanded way, this crisis, I think, may end up giving support to the make-it-at-home movement that has been characteristic of the Navarro wing of the Trump White House. And this is going to play out over time, and I already detect signs that uh, a lot of producers of a lot of things are going to pay more attention to the resilience of their of their production supply lines and less to the efficiency of them because efficiency and resilience are at odds in some respects. The more efficient you are, the more exposed you are to diet, you know, to shocks to the environment that you're perfectly adjusted to. Yeah, I, I made that point a few podcasts ago when I learned that I was it was news to me that we get 80% of our antibiotics from China, for example. And it's not that we think that China's gonna, you know, in some dastardly way, cut us off, you know, to make us all die of pneumonia or something. But, but rather that if they have problems, uh -huh. such as we are now seeing, yeah. they, that presents a real it's problem. It's a very for us. old. It's a yeah. very old principle. You 
put your all your eggs in one yeah, basket, yeah, yeah. no matter how carefully you wash that basket, a stone could land on exactly, it and break exactly. the eggs. And, and also, um, Senator Romney uh, was distressed to learn at a hearing uh, this past week um, that the strategic reserve that we set up after the H1N1 and, uh, uh, pandemic about 10 years ago, which is supposed to have masks and gloves and gowns and various other things uh, on on reserve just for such an emergency as we now have. Well, during the hearing, he found out that they only have about 10% of what they were supposed to hold. And then there was a correction afterwards that, nope, it's actually only half that. So um, that those numbers may have been since changed. But the fact is, there are so many things that we tell the government to do or that we think government is doing or the government announces that it's doing and then it doesn't get done. And it, one of the jobs of members of Congress is to keep after them, to do real oversight, to make sure it actually happens. Uh, and, uh, and if we learn that from this crisis, that would be, uh, that would be good too. All right, I have a quick comment on, um, on Jeff Sessions, uh, who... Uh, suffered yet another humiliation at the hands of Donald Trump this week when Trump endorsed his opponent in his Senate race uh, in Alabama. The uh, opponent, I think his name is Tupperville. He was a former coach at the uh, University of Alabama football. And uh, anyway, Trump endorsed the opponent. And, the, you know, it's, a, it's really a lesson that um, that Jeff Sessions made a bad bargain all those years ago when he was the first person of stature, uh, being a sitting United, United States senator, to put his money on Trump and to give him his imprimatur. And he was uh, uh, he learned to his sorrow that uh, that Trump is a very vindictive and nasty person. And that when you consider the reason that Trump is so bitter toward Sessions, it really sums up Trump's character problems. He is bitter and furious at Sessions because Sessions insisted on following the rules and doing what the regulations of the Justice Department required him to do rather than break the rules and protect Trump. So that's his sin, and that's what everybody knows, and it's worth remembering that this week. Thank you all. Rub-a-dub-dub, wash your hands. Uh, (laughs) We will see one another at a distance, social distancing, uh, next week. Thank you all. 